Well, it is a real pleasure to be here with you this morning. And my wife is actually on the way here. She had a, this was our first Sunday to have a children's choir. And she was, she's the leader of the choir and she couldn't figure out how to get out of this and didn't really want to, so I don't blame her. But she, I, <laughs> I looked on my little find my phone thing on my phone just and saw her coming down 131, so she'll be here before too long. <laughs> but we're Glenn and Becky Kerr. We have been with Bibles International for 28 years and you as a church have been with us for over 25 of those years. You have supported us for that length of time. It's kind of unusual because I was thinking about that over the last week and so. Some of you may remember that you all decide, have you, how many of you have ever bought a house without looking at it? <laughs> a few of you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a very few of you. I, I know of you. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, you decided to support a missionary without seeing me. I don't know if you remember that. Years ago, um, I was in my pre-field ministry, and I was needed in Africa for a translation project, and there was a conflict because Berean Baptist Church wanted me to come here and present my ministry, and I had already arranged that, but there was a real need, and there was nobody else to go. So I went... And Dr. Henry Osborne, if you know who he was and is, he was, a, he was the original leader in Bible translation and Bibles International. He and his wife and Becky all came down here, and he told about me, and I guess he did a pretty good job because he decided to take me on. <laughs> so anyway, as a matter of fact, in this next picture, this is what Bibles International looked like when I first, when we first joined, and you can see over on the far right there, uh, the gray-headed man in the back, that's Dr. Henry Osborne. I should go back just for a minute and point out a couple things. Bibles International is a division of Baptist Mid-Missions. Of course, Baptist Mid-Missions is very much like ABWE. We have a good relationship, and we have actually, myself, have worked on a couple ABWE projects in translation. So, We've been involved in various places, and so Baptist Mid-Missions is our parent organization, and in 1981, they created Bibles International. And we joined, actually a few years before this, but this is the earliest picture I could find of the old staff. But this past year, this is the picture of the staff. And now this includes kids, and it's interesting because if you notice this picture here, there are a lot of um, people who obviously have kids who are grown because they don't look like young people, right? <laughs> and we were one of the few people at that time who had kids who are still in school. And you can see right now that we have a lot of young people in Bibles International with children. And so that has been a real blessing because the Lord has brought in very, very many young people through our educational programs. Dr. Henry Osborne started a program up at Northland Baptist Bible College in linguistics, and he got me involved in teaching in that after he was retiring, and we have been able to recruit at least 10 or 15 young people 
and their families to come with Bibles International and do the work of Bible translation. And that has been a real important part of our ministry is recruiting others. As a matter of fact, if we look at this next picture, this was our consultant seminar this past year, and nine of those people in that picture have been in the classes that I have taught on linguistics and Bible translation, and we've been able to recruit them, and they are involved in Bible translation. As a matter of fact, this next picture, this is the number of language groups that I've worked with in the last 28 years. And they're all over the place. And this is because the Lord has enabled us to go to many places and help with many projects. Now, I'd like to say I know 38 different languages, but I don't. <laughs> I only know 11, so it's kind of rough, you know. <laughs> But in reality, what it means is that in most places, we use a bridge language. In other words, the people, like for instance in Africa, in most of the countries where we work, the people, the people who are qualified as translators have grown up in school and learned French from the very first day that they went to school. If you can imagine that, can you imagine what it would be like to send your kids to school and know that they would be learning German for the first day and never have had it trained to them, the teacher would speak everything in German and they had to just pick it up. Well, that's what it's like in Africa. And so these people learn French like that and then when they're grown up and they're qualified to be a translator, they're really good at French at that point. And so by communicating in French, we're able to bridge the gap between my understanding and my training in the Bible in the original languages of the Bible and everything and their natural understanding of their own language. And by that means, by this bridge language, we're able to do a better translation than either one of us could do by ourselves. They would have to spend years learning the original languages like I have. I've spent 50 years learning Greek and Hebrew, both languages. I haven't spent that long with Aramaic, but I get along pretty well with Aramaic. But anyway, the point is, I've got a great gift that the Lord has given me by His grace. And yes, I've worked at it, but it's a gift. The Lord has enabled me to do this. They have a great gift because they grew up in this culture and they know the people and they know the language and they, that translator and I working together, we can create a translation that is better than either one of us could do by ourselves. And that is the great thing about Bible translation. It's a means of bringing about more rapidly a translation than it could be done otherwise. And so that's why I've been able to work with these different groups. What they will do is they'll prepare a back translation from their translation into the French or Spanish or English, as the case may be, and then I will read that and we discuss the things verse by verse to be sure that the translation is accurate. So it's a careful, thorough, but somewhat complicated process, if you can imagine. But in the way of doing this, we've been able to work with all of these different groups and been able to see them. Some of them <coughs> I have started from start to finish, like I've seen three New Testaments done in my work with the Kabyeh Project in Togo, the Songhai in Mali, and the Luxembourgish in Luxembourg. And so these three New Testaments we've seen to completion, and just recently, as a matter of fact, this, in July, I took, we went to Europe, to Luxembourg. We, we usually do most of our work by internet. And so this, but once a year, it's a good idea to see people face to face because it renews the bonds of connection and everything. And so I have an intern who's the young man you can see on the right in that first picture on the left. 
And then further back there, the young lady right to the left of the window there is my assistant. She and I and he all went to Luxembourg and worked on the translation so he could experience it. And we also had a public meeting where for the first time in the history of the world, the Old Testament was read aloud in Luxembourgish. And so there's never, if you can imagine this, there's a European country that's never had a Bible translation in their own language. They've already depended on some other language to hear about the Word of God. So now people are reading the Bible. The New Testament is done, and they're reading the Bible in their own language. And so this is the work that we're doing, and I'm going to get to our message in just a minute, but I want to thank you as a church as individuals, people that we've come to know, and the work that the church has done in continuity to support us in this work. We could not have done it without you. There are people in this world who have a Bible because of you, and I value that greatly, and I hope you realize how important that is. Now, I'm a scholar, but I'm a crybaby, so you just got to get used to that, okay? <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, in November, this is the Songhai, Song, Sango Bible. I have to keep Songhai and Sango. Sango Bible. In 1966, missionaries did a Bible in Sango, and it has needed rev- revision for some time, and so we worked for 16 years to get the copyright privilege and then to finish the revision, and in November we're going to dedicate the whole Bible for the people of, of, of Central African Republic. It's been a monumental but very important work, and I thank the Lord for his enabling in that regard. So the Lord is advancing. His word is changing people because it's the thing, as Pastor mentioned, it's the thing that changes people. We don't change people the Lord does. We are simply instruments in his hands to bring about the means where they can hear the word of God and therefore understand it. Okay, now I heard that, I heard that your conference was going to be about sowing the seed, and guess what? I had this message I've been working on for the last year or so called the parable of the sower, and I just thought it just might work this morning, so we'll see how it goes. This is a well-known parable, but I would like you to reconsider it in a different light, Okay. So we'll look at this in, I'm going to look at Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, and we will, we will look at this together. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And I'll start reading when I hear pages stop rustling. <laughs> Just to make sure that you all can find the place, I don't want to rush you. Okay, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And again, he, that is Jesus, began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him. And so he got into a boat and sat in it in the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, 
And because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on the stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns, They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. So as I said, this is a very familiar parable. As a matter of fact, it's found in Matthew and in Luke. Um, Mark's account has a few more details than the rest, but Luke's is the only is the least detailed, surprisingly. But he's the one he's the one that says the seed was trampled on on the side of the road. But anyway, if you ever want to, you could look at Matthew thirteen three through nine and Luke eight five through eight to compare the, the the uses of the parable. But let's look at this together. First of all, let's set the scene. The scene is that Jesus was getting ready to teach. And a whole bunch of people came, and he decided to get in a boat. And you can see the boat there. Uh, and so he got in the boat, and he got out in this picture up above, the middle one there, is the traditional place in Israel where the, the, this sermon was taught. Okay? Now, if you look at the thing from above, you can see why it looks almost like a natural amphitheater. So this was the setting. He was out in the boat, and he started preaching to them, telling this story about the parable. And interestingly enough... Now, that picture on the left, I'm sorry, they didn't have color film back then, so I couldn't get a color picture. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, they were there. You know the story. The Bible says that the ground was hard, or the, where the seed landed, it was by the side of the field, and the birds came and ate it. Okay, so that's the first step of the story. And then there was the rocky ground. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you know that rocky ground is normal. As a matter of fact, I think Israel is a rock with a little dirt sprinkled on it sometimes. <laughs> okay. It is really rocky. And so the rocky ground has dirt on top of it in many places. But what happens is if a seed goes in there, see the warmth of the sun warms the rock. And so it's like a little incubator there. And so the seed pops up real well because it's moist and it's warm. But as the sun continues to shine, the incubator becomes an oven. 
And guess what happens to the plant? It dies. So that's the situation there with the stony ground or the rocky ground. And then the weedy ground, of course, there are still rocks in Israel. This is a picture from Israel, but they're still weedy. And the weeds, in other words, the soil is capable. The soil is good for plants, but it's also good for weeds. And so the weeds, which are more aggressive and more um, can seem to last longer, they crowd out the good seed. And then finally, there's the picture of the good ground. Okay, So I want us to think about this. After Jesus tells the parable, he makes a statement. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I found this really cool-looking picture. That is actually a votive offering to the god Apollo. And so somebody got his name, Proclos, made this prayer to Apollo, and he bought this little thing of bronze to show that he was giving his ears to Apollo. Now, I'm not advocating, obviously, giving your ears to Apollo, but the point is that a lot of people wanted gods to do things for them, but what we want to do is hear what God says to us. There's a difference. In most pagan religions, the idea is, okay, I need this, will you do it for me? And will you do it more than this God will do it? And so we trade off gods because one God might not like me, maybe the other God is stronger, so we battle back and forth. In reality, with the one true God, we should be those who are offering his, to him our ears to hear what he has to say. What is he trying to teach us? Because the Lord Jesus, when he spoke this parable, wasn't just telling a nice story. He had a real meaning behind it, and we need to get it. Most of the crowd listened to the story and walked away. But the disciples and a small group of people gathered back together because they knew there was more to it than this. And so we're going to look at what I hope is more to it than this, okay? And remember, the sower sows the word. This is the hinge point of the whole passage because that's the most important thing, that the word gets sown. The word gets planted in people's hearts. That's what we really want more than anything else, both for ourselves and for others, that the word of God gets planted in their hearts. Now, this is a missions conference, and let me just mention this in this way. Yes, I know we're talking about missions, and I've already talked about that, but missions starts here. And this is, the people ask me sometimes, what can we do for you as, your, as our, your missionary? What can we do for you? Well, the best thing you can do for me and every other missionary is sow the word in others. Because that will produce more fruit for the glory of God than anything else. So we're going to talk about this. The sower sows the word. Okay, so let's look at verse 15 where he talks about the roadway, Okay. And he says there in verse 15, and those are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear Satan, when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Now, I want you to look at this not from the standpoint of the soil, but from the standpoint of the farmer standing over, the sower standing over this soil, okay? So let's think about this. What would a farmer do for this kind of soil? Well, I guess most of the first thing we think of is dig it up, right, and loosen it up. That's not the first thing you do. The first thing you have to do is put up a fence or make an alternate pathway. Because if you don't, people are just going to walk over it again and it's going to be gone. So something, yes, you're going to want to dig it and loosen up the soil, but the first thing you have to do is keep people from walking on it. Now, how does this apply to you and me as sowers of the Word of God? We know what a farmer would do. They'd put up a fence to make sure people didn't keep walking on the ground. 
and then they would work on it. Well, you and I, what are we going to do? We need to gain an audience with people. We need to figure out how to gain an audience. That means becoming a close friend with them. We've got to, so to speak, put up a fence so that your voice doesn't get drowned out by all the other voices in a person's life. If I tell somebody the gospel and they're listening to everything else and they just hear me telling them the gospel and that's all the contact I ever have with them, it's going to be lost probably most likely. It's just going to fall there and the birds are going to take it away. So we need to build a relationship with people. We need to gain an audience with them. Now let me give you somewhat of a sort of a stark example. If somebody came up to you and said, how are your kidneys doing? Would you be a little embarrassed? <laughs> right. But if my urologist comes up to me and says, how are your kidneys doing? I'll tell him exactly how things are going because he knows me and he's established a relationship with me. And as a matter of fact, as I get older, I need a urologist. So that's how things work. Okay. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that he's built a relationship with me. And so what he says to me is important because I know he has my best interest at heart, and he knows my condition, and he knows what to tell me. We've got to build that same kind of relationship with others so that what we say to them is not drowned out by everything else going on all around them, and there is gobs of everything going all around them, if you haven't noticed. We live in a world that is flooded with junk all the time, all around people. Even watching a commercial on TV, is loaded with junk. Well, I should say this. Watching a commercial on TV is loaded with junk, period, whatever you think otherwise. <laughs> okay, commercials are designed to influence you in 30 seconds to do something you don't want to do. How, how important is that? And the rest of the TV program is there so that you will look at the commercial. It's not there to entertain you or help you. It's there to get you to look at the commercial. So we're flooded with junk. We have to gain the right, pe right with people to ask hard personal questions. They're not going to listen to us unless they know who we are and know how we've related to them. Okay, so we build a relationship with this. We gain an audience. That's what this, that's what to me this ground, this round by the wayside says. As a farmer, I want to make sure that that fence is there and that I work the soil without worrying about who's going to trample on it later. Okay, so moving along. What about the rocky ground? Okay, let's see what it says in verses 16 and 17. These likewise are the ones sown on the stony ground, who when they hear the word immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises, the words for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Okay, so the rocky ground. What would a farmer do for this soil? Well, he'd get the rocks out, right? <laughs> and then he'd smooth it and refill it with good soil. So what does it mean to get the rocks out in somebody's life? I talk about this as answering objections. Okay, getting into their lives and giving them the answers that will stand the test of time and adversity. They've got, they've got ideas in their heart and mind that are wrong and deadly. And you and I have the privilege of digging the rocks out and teaching the truth. And so if we take the time to replace bad ideas with good ideas because they come from the Word of God, we're digging around in the rocks 
and putting good soil in its place. That's the answering objection stage of sharing with people, okay? You have to find out what, they, what the rocks are in their life that are keeping them from ever following the Lord, okay? So answering objections is this next stage of sharing the gospel with people. Okay, third one, the weedy ground. <clears throat> and so the weedy ground, of course, we read in verse 18 and 19, now these are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Okay, so what does a farmer do for weedy soil? Well, obviously, he pulls out the weeds. And you do this not just once, but over and over and over again. This was one of those fun jobs I had when I was a kid. My mom and dad both grew up in farming Michigan, and they knew how to make farms and how to make gardens. And my mom always had a garden, and guess who got to weed it? <sighs> and that's the only thing I ever learned about gardening, because I never knew how to do the gardening. All I knew how to do was pull out the weeds. And so my wife and I had one successful gardening in our married life so far, and that was in Madison, Wisconsin, when I was doing my graduate work. And fortunately, our pastor there and his wife knew what they were doing, and they showed us where to put the ground, and they showed us what to do, and we had, a great, <laughs> we had a great garden there. But pulling out the weeds is something the farmer has to do over and over again. As often as they appear, you have to get them out. So what is this like? What is this telling about our job as sowers of the Word of God? What do we do with weedy soil? Well, this is counting the cost. You see, how thorough, first of all, is the person's understanding of the gospel? Do they really understand it, what it means and what it implies in their life? Do they really get the picture? And second, does being a Christian really matter? Or are there other things so important in their life that the, that the Christian message is simply going to be one thing in the middle of their life? And then the, here's the important thing. Have you modeled as a believer the kind of commitment that makes it clear that this really does matter. That the gospel is more important than a Monday night football game. That the gospel is more important than finding a buck and shooting it out in the woods. Any number of other things, whatever you want to fill in, more important than fill in the blank. Okay, do we model that kind of thing as believers? Do we live in that way where people see that this is important in our lives? Because if it's not important to us, they might get it on their own, but we're not helping very much, okay? They might figure it out and become a better Christian than we are, which we hope they will, but let's not quite short-circuit the process. <laughs> let's model. We need to model before him, them the idea of counting the cost. You see, the soil is fine at this point. The soil can produce plants, but the soil also produces weeds. And so we have to show that the soil and the plant is more important than the weeds. And all of us have some kind of weeds. You know, I, as I prepared this message and I thought about this, I've thought about the reality that in my own life, I've been every one of these soils at different times in my life. And every one of us probably have too. There have been times when we haven't wanted to hear the Word of God and we've just sort of tuned it out. There are times when we've had rocks in our life where we have objections and things that just get in the way. And then there's times when we haven't quite caught the, counted the cost, okay? So all of these things can be true about us as soil as well as us learning how to reap the harvest for others and bring others to the gospel so that they can understand 
So counting the cost is important. Then finally, the good soil. And of course, this is the good part, right? Verse 20, but these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. And so the good ground is the goal of the, of the parable. But let's ask the question, why is it good soil? Why is it good ground? Well, because somebody did all the work to get it there. <laughs> okay. In other words, the process of any one of us who becomes a witness for Christ are going to spend more time with people before they get saved than we are at that moment when they get saved. And the before time is so important. You may not see a bunch of people get saved, but if you sow the word and you do your job, you can be the link in the process of their life coming to Christ. And that's what we really should have our goal. Yes, it's easy to take, you know, when the corn, you know, the sweet corn time of year, right? It's real easy to pull off a sweet corn ear, take it in the kitchen and cook it and everything else. That's the easy part. It takes a lot of work to get that sweet corn ear ready to be plucked. So <clears throat> the reason the soil is good is because the farmer's done his job. So what does the farmer do with that kind of soil? They water it, they cultivate it, they watch out for thieves, they nurture and grow the plants. And reality, remember this, the work just starts when the plant sprouts because there's a lot of other things that need to be done. This is the stage of making a disciple. This soil is not just simply, oh good, the plant's up, everything's fine. No, this is when you really start working a lot with the person who's been saved to help them grow. Taking time to teach and to model. A friend of mine says, it's time to do life with them. And look at this, there's my wife. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, I told them you were coming, so. <laughs> I don't mean to, well, I do mean to draw attention to her because she's a beautiful <laughs> lady. <laughs> okay, so doing life with people means getting into, to just helping them grow in the things that every young believer struggles through. You do life with them. You help them along the way. You help them learn how to be sowers themselves, teaching how to share the gospel with others, how to understand relationships and build them, and then see them become fruitful and productive. And so these are the, these are, I hope this is another way of looking at this parable of the soils in different ways, that you won't look at and try, well, is this one saved or not, or is this one saved, or is this, that's the way I've heard messages on this all my life. I want you to think about what would a farmer do with this kind of person? What would a person desiring to sow the word do with this kind of person that we find? And so I want to mention something. Oh, but I don't know enough to be able to do that. Oh, Brother Glenn, you're just asking too much. I can't do that. Um, <clears throat> how many of you have had kids who said funny things when they were kids? Did you hate it or love it? You loved it, didn't you? <laughs> Our oldest granddaughter used to say, cause huh, instead of why, because she didn't know how to say why. So she says, we tell her to do something, cause huh, okay? <laughs> well, we love that. And kids say things like that all the time. Do you think that the Lord enjoys even when you struggle knowing that you're trying to speak for him? Isn't that a privilege? 
Don't you think he loves you? And another question, how many of you have learned so much about the Bible that you don't need to learn anymore? (laughs) Okay, so we're all in the case of needing to learn more, right? So we never know enough, but we always know someplace to start. We know enough for the moment. And if we need to learn something more, we can say, I'm sorry, I don't know, but I'll find out. Okay? All it takes is a willingness to start. Um, I have this weird memory in my mind. They were talking about things at church, and I was playing with a friend of mine. I must have been four or five. I don't remember how old I was. But we were in our backyard, and he was on our slide, and he had his hands back like this. He was sitting on the slide holding it there, and I started telling him the gospel and told him that he needed to get saved, and he bowed his head and he got saved. I have no idea whether he really did that right or not. I don't know. I don't know if I said the things right, but I, I'm sure of this, that God was pleased with me for trying. And whatever happened, that was a start in that young man's boy's life that maybe did something I don't know. All I'm saying is, we can start very small, and it's fine. Okay, so let's go on. Here's a helper for you. If you're not sure and you want something to read, this is a really good book, Confident Faith by Mark Middleburg. And the subtitle is Building a Foundation for Your Beliefs. And it has six faith paths, six ways to describe what kind of faith path you've taken to get where you are so you can identify what you might need to go forward on, okay? And then it has 20 arrows of truth, 20 important things that you need to be sure you know that you can be able to share with others when the time comes. And then 10 barriers to belief, which is really helpful to figure out how to get around questions that people bring up, okay? Now, Another thing, next actions. I don't know if any of you read David Allen's books on um, uh, (coughs) uh, workflow management. He's a real guru on this stuff. And I've read a lot of them. And he makes a statement. He says, if you have a meeting and you don't have a next action, then the meeting's wasted. Now, this has been a meeting, okay? Does everybody notice we're meeting? Okay. So you and I all need a next action after this meeting. And I've listed some possibilities here, okay? So I'm not saying you need to do all these, but I think we should at least try to do one of them. Okay, first of all, what kind of soil are you? Have you received the seed of the word yourself? Have you received the master sower into your life? You may be interested in Christianity, even interested in the Bible. Obviously, you would be if you, weren't, if you came here this morning. But maybe you've never actually trusted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've never really believed that you were a sinner and in need of salvation and realized that Jesus Christ's offer of sacrifice for himself on the cross is the only and the best, the only solution for the problem of sin. And it's free. What a deal. And so if you've never come to that, then I'd urge you to do it right now and tell somebody about it. Or find out if you have questions you're not sure what to do. I bet you there are a few people in this church who would be able to help you. And I'm sure the pastors and others in this church would be willing to help you find that solution. So that's one next action. And there may be some people who need that next action. And then maybe think about this. Write down or think the name of one person you would like to be a sower for in the next six months and pray for God to open a door for you. This was my start for witnessing when I was a teenager. Between my junior and senior year of high school, I moved from one high school to another, which is a terrible thing to do to a kid. Okay. (laughs) But 
I went to a summer camp between those years, and I wasn't a bad kid, I wasn't a rebellious kid, but I was not an outspoken kid, and I was not a person who was evidencing, evidencing his faith to others. But that summer, in that camp, in that one week, I got the picture, <laughs> and it came home to me. And this is one of the things that the man who was speaking suggested, this thing. Write down a think in the name of one person, either someone you're close to or somewhere in your circle of influence that you know, and concentrate on that person. And I went to a new high school knowing no one at the high school for my senior year. And I carried my Bible with me every day to school, first time I ever did that. And I started showing. The thing about it was, Nobody knew me, and so when I came with the Bible, they said, oh, he's, a, he's some kind of Bible person. They accepted me as that person. That's who I was. They found out from gray one that that's who I was. It helped me a great deal to get over my own shyness and my own reluctance. I am naturally a very shy person. You may not notice that. I gave up on it a long time ago because it just doesn't get, it just gets too much in the way, okay? So... I, am, I was very shy as a person, as a teenager. I was not talkative. But I started sharing the gospel with others as I, as I grew there. So that's one possibility. Think of third. Think of someone you know in each of the categories I have named and described. Think about those four types of soil. Think of somebody that you know that's like one of those. And think about them and pray for them. And then go out today and look at the house of each of your neighbors on every side and I want you to imagine what they would say to someone who asked them about you, asked them about you. What would they say about you, their impression of who you are and what you're like? Right, just think. You, you may want to do it, but I, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying think about what impression do you think they would have of you. And I hope that they at least think you'd be a nice person, but would they recognize who you are in Christ? Would that have come across to them in any way? And make sure that we think about that. All right? And then what do your, another question, what do your coworkers and classmates in school contacts think of you? We need to realize what kind of a testimony we have to others around you. And here's the last one, and this I recommend very strongly. Could you pray this prayer? I'll go back here, read that. Could you pray Colossians 4.3 often, maybe each day? At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. You may pray this for your missionaries. It says, Brother Ken was asking you to pray that for him, and that's a very good thing. And I ask you to pray that for me, too. But are you praying it for you? Are you asking God to open a door for the word for you? This is a prayer that God has answered in my life more often than any other type and kind of prayer I've prayed. Because if I pray it and want to do it, the Lord opens doors. He knows who's out there, you know, and he knows who he can call on. Wouldn't you like to be the one that he calls on and moves? To just be one link in the process of bringing the gospel to somebody, whatever it takes what would happen if everybody in this church prayed this every day until the next mission conference? What would you think, hap what would you think this building would look like next year? <laughs> I bet it would be. I think the Lord could use that in our lives individually and the life of the church. And I'm not saying, I, I'm, 
this, you, by the way, you guys look really good, but I didn't know if you noticed that. It's a really nice looking congregation and people's faces are at me. I can see, I had cataract surgery, so now I can see without glasses, but I can't read without glasses. So that's why I've been doing this other thing. I've got glasses coming that'll take care of that. But you guys look really nice and I'm very happy with that. But what would it be like if we had people who were saved in the last year all over this congregation sitting here waiting for somebody to help them grow. What would that be like? All right, so this is what the parable looks like in Luxembourgish, in case you wanted to know. Just, uh, it's one of the things we've been working on. We finished the New Testament in the Luxembourgish language, a language in Europe that has never had the Bible in its, in its language. And somebody made this illustration of the whole thing, which I thought was pretty cool. So the word is being sown in all parts of the world not only because of the team that I'm working with, but because of you. You're helping us do that in all over the world, and I'm very grateful for that. And I know the Lord is honoring that. And I know that there are people in this congregation who desire to sow the word here. And the Lord will equip you and will empower you and will guide you and he will enable you. So I think that's it. I think that's my last slide, right? Oh, yeah, there's the, there's the last slide. So, sowing the seed. We don't want to become proxy sowers, okay? I mean, it's great to be, support others, but if your sowing is done by proxy, then you're no better of a farmer than I was as a kid with a garden, okay? All I can do is pull up weeds, okay? But as you learn what the Lord wants you to do, then he will direct it and he will empower you. And each one of us has the privilege of being a sower of the word and seeing what people's ears do with it. May the Lord help us, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the preciousness of your word. We thank you for the privilege of sharing it this morning. And we thank you for the privilege of representing you in this world in various ways as we each have our place. Help us, Lord, all of us to find our place and fill it with joy and grace, knowing that you are leading and guiding us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.